Welcome back, folks. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase. I'm Josh, and we're here to give you episode three and season two of The Witcher. Uh, another really great episode. It's one of those series that tends to get better with every next installment that it puts out. Really excited for what we're going to bring you today. I know last week we'll go ahead and do a quick recap if you didn't join us uh, for the main parts of episode two. We got some really cool things with uh, new kinds of people coming into the play here with the elves and, and all that good stuff. And so I'll give like a quick recap on that before we jump into episode three here today. Before I do so, I want to turn the floor over to Chase and uh, hear what he's got to say. Yeah, man. No, I was stoked for this one. Uh, not to give anything away, but you can kind of see how, you know, Siri's going to start to become a little badass now <laughs> so we'll get into that today um wanted to tell you guys thank you you know y'all are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy um we just hit over a thousand written reviews just wanted to say thank you for that we got a lot of stuff planned for you this season jay nelly and i was looking at it the other day it's only going up and up from here and i'll turn it back over to jay nelly yeah honestly that's a great point uh talking about all the big things that are coming out later this year uh we're not going to get a break here at factor fantasy there's there's really uh <laughs> so much going on in the worlds of fantasy fiction that 2022 is going to be slam packed and uh you know but it, it's worth it man because we really love doing this so uh without further ado i want to just kind of give everyone a recap of what happened in episode two last week and then we're going to kind of jump right into episode three here today uh, I will be the one going through the summary of episode three, talk a little bit about the one monster that we get to see in episode three, and then uh, we'll kind of do our fun debates and, and then call it a day here, and we'll see you guys next week for uh, episode four. So uh, with that being said, just to kind of big, kind of touch on the big key things about episode two, if you remember this is where Fringilla and Yennefer were taken captive by the elves. We got to meet two really prominent elves in Philavandril and Francesca. Both are going to play a, a big role going forward. You know, they had that whole thing where they went down into that crypt-looking thing, and there was an old witch in the forest that came to all three of them, Yennefer, Fringilla, and Francesca, as different prominent people. I remember, you know, for Fringilla, it came to her as Emir. For uh, Francesca, it came to her as Ithlene, and then you know, the red, hood, red hooded uh, figure for uh, Yennefer, which we still don't really know a ton about on, on that one yet. And I think that's going to come into play a little bit more as the season goes on. So there were some of the big things that happened there. You know, we finally get to see a little bit about what happens when the Witchers go for their winter rest over at K. Morin. Uh, we got to see uh, Eskel. He brought a bunch of uh, ladies through, even though it's supposed to be a very secret location. So we always had fun with that last week. Still going to have questions about how so many people are allowed here if it's supposed to be a secret location. Um, but he ended up being infected by a leshy, which are not supposed to be able to mutate and, and take over other bodies. It's a brand new thing. But anyways, it did so to Eskel. And uh, Geralt, unfortunately, ended up having to kill him. And again, the only way to kill a leshy is fire through the heart. And so that happened there. They're kind of left in wondering, you know, what is this new mutation? What happened here? How is this even possible? And that's some things that we're going to find out, not so much uh, today, but next week. And so that kind of really closes up the big key points of what happened in episode two. And to kind of start out here and jump right into episode three, the, the episode three kind of opens with Cirilla training with a sword on a dummy 
as she's trying to perfect a certain move and she keeps failing and and finally Geralt tells her that she needs to rest so she tries to argue and continue on but Geralt grabs her sword and walks back and she actually runs up behind him and grabs her sword back but then she has this sort of vision of a forest that both was kind of on fire and in the winter time as well that was flashing back between the two things and it was really interesting we're starting to see you know more development into Cirilla and, and what her abilities are and what she's able to do but uh, they go into the Great Hall and they make a joke at Lambert's expense like what do you call a witcher with no brains <laughs> said Lambert <laughs> thought that was pretty funny uh, but Geralt tells Cirilla to rest after she eats and she kind of just gives him a look and grabs her sword. Like she's not, she doesn't want to listen to her. She's like stubborn. She's defiant. She's just like any sort of kid growing up. You remember, you know, especially growing up as boys in my little town. You know, we never wanted to, to rest. We wanted to get right back out there and play and have fun. And you know, you just it, it's just really funny to see it from now that we're 30 years old, looking back on how frustrating it must have been for our parents <laughs> trying to tell us what to do. And we're like, no, we'll do our way. So I thought that was kind of cool. But anyways, uh, Lambert is upset that Geralt had to kill Eskel, and Geralt tries to tell him that Eskel wasn't himself by the end of it, and basically that he had no choice. So Geralt walks into another room, and then he has a flashback vision of fond times with Eskel, so you can tell the fact that he had to kill his friend is haunting him too. Which also leads into the thing where, and I think this is going to be a reoccurring theme, if you guys remember in Season 1, one of the qualities of Witchers is supposedly that they do not have human emotions, but obviously he does. He's you know, feeling some sort of you know, sadness and loss when it comes to Eskel, and that's a human emotion. So we kind of check over to Vesemir, who is inspecting the body of Eskel as the Leshy, like, as him as the Leshy, and he's doing a form of an autopsy. And Vesemir tells Geralt, this shouldn't have happened. We shouldn't have lost him this way. And Geralt replies, I know. To which Vesemir says, there must be more tests I can run to track whatever mutated the other Leshy. Geralt responds, if there was a scientific explanation for any of this, you would have found it by now. Vesemir says, we've got a lab full of alchemical compounds that can change day to fucking night. I'm not going to give up now. Geralt says, I'm not asking you to give up, but it's time to let Eskel rest. He deserves the peace. And from there, the scene cuts to Tissaia, and she is magically writing the names of the mages who fell at the Battle of Sodden. And she gets it all the way down to the very last line of the parchment there. And she's writing it all in magic, of course. Uh, and she puts Yennefer's name at the bottom. She still doesn't know Yennefer is still alive. And that's going to be a big thing going forward as well. And so Istrid, he's brought forth. And Artorius questions him about insight into Nilfgaard's followers. And Istrid tells him that no, he, he had no, nothing, like, no insight at all. He was just working on the archaeological dig site. And... Artorius says, a respected mage, and even he found no indication of their plan to attack. How could any of us have known? Tissaia said, because we told you. Stregobor uh, then says, Vilgefortz had one good hunch about Nilfgaard's military strategy. Tissaia said, a hunch that saved the continent. Vilgefortz says, I'm not here to glorify my part in our victory at Sodden, nor to watch you perform feigned inquisitions to distract from your failures. The northern kingdoms are coming for the memorial, and they need answers. Tissaia says, The Nifgardian prisoner hasn't proven fruitful. There's evidence of a magical barrier in his head. Vilgefort says, So we need to search elsewhere. And Istrid replies, Yeah, I would help if I could. But I wasn't there to study Nilfgaard. I was there to study Monoliths. And that's real quick, that's a quick foreshadow there, that he was there to study Monoliths. I want everyone to kind of pay attention, but anyways. Uh, they told the history of this continent... And I think they hold our future, too. 
And Stregobor says, a future that will soon go to hell now that the elves are flocking to Sintra. If we want to keep our people safe, we'd be wise to recognize the enemies in our midst. And Tisaya says, the elves are not our enemies. And Stregobor replies, they've aligned with Nilfgaard, proving what many of us have known for centuries. They cannot be trusted. If we don't control this now, it'll grow beyond even our capabilities, and we'll be burying a lot more than 14 mages then. And then, from out of nowhere, Yennefer walks into the room and says, 13. And everyone gasps, and it's a crazy thing, because now everyone knows that she's alive. And <laughs> Tissay is kind of overcome with emotion here, and it's pretty cool. Uh, but kind of Tissay pulls Yennefer to the side and uh, tells Yennefer about what the congregations, what they're trying to do, and how Artorius can feel his grasp on the leadership slipping, and how Stregobor is desperate. And so Tissay tells her, Your actions turn the tide at Sodden Hill. You are a hero to me and many others, but we need to let Vilgefortz carry the mantle of victory for now. Yennefer asks her, you want me to lay low? Tissaia says, I need you to. Yennefer replies, because you and Vilgefortz are making a play for their seats. Tissaia responds, we know it's dangerous, but this is not the time to be weak. It's the time to be strong, just like you were at Sodden. You did what you had to do, and I, for one, will always be grateful for your sacrifice. And now the scene cuts to Sintra. But if you guys remember, elves call Sintra Zintria. And this is like the original city that got sacked back in season one with Calanthe and all that. And Nilfgaard, you know, took over Sintra. So this is where the refugee elves are arriving in the city now. So Villavandril tells Francesca that the north has turned against the elves completely. And that their immigration to Sintra has inflamed tensions since they joined with Nilfgaard. And Francesca tells Philavangel that Nilfgaard will protect them, that they're safe there in Sintra. And from there, the scene cuts over to Cirilla, training, still training, at K. Morin. And she's improving, but still stumbling a bit. And so Lambert and Cohen actually pick on her for what they think is useless training. And, and you know, any of those times if you were a young kid and someone you know, was getting under your skin and bothering you, like telling you, oh, you're not, you know, you're just doing the easy stuff. You're not ready for the hard stuff and make you want to like really kind of buck up and do that. That's kind of what they were doing to her. So Sorolla asks, you know, what they did, and they basically tell her that she's not ready, and try to basically to try to goad her into doing it and making a fool of herself. And she tells them, and this is a really cool quote. She says, "I want to do what a witcher does." And so Lambert and Cohen take her to this super complex and dangerous obstacle course type thing to have her try and make it through. And of course, she attempts it and gets knocked off at the first obstacle. Like really got her ass blasted off that platform, landed hard as shit on the ground, got the wind knocked out of her, and Lambert kind of taunts her and says, ah, I still want to be a witcher. And then the scene cuts to Geralt and Vesemir, and they're laying Eskel to his final rest. Uh, Vesemir is like sniffing and tearful, again, leading us to believe that witchers do in fact feel human emotion. And so the conversation they had, Vesemir says, death by a mutating leshy, find that in our annals. And Geralt replies, how did we miss this? I feel like the continent's evolving underneath our feet, and we didn't see it coming. Vesemir says, maybe another conjunction will come along and change it all again. I know you think I'm mad, but I need to know what happened. If it were your child, you'd be going crazy to figure it out. What you missed. What you could have done differently. And Geralt says, I know. It's a burden I now share. And then the wolves arrive, and Geralt and Vesemir leave. Then the scene cuts back over to Yennefer, and she's attempting magic in Eratuza on that little water area, and she's still unable to use any sort of magic. And that's going to be a big issue going forward as well. 
So the other lady mages that survived the Battle of Sodden come in and they embrace her. They say, oh, they're so happy that she's alive and they all hug it out and they want to go for a swim, but they don't realize that Yennefer can't do magic anymore. So I think Sabrina is the one that ends up hitting the pool and uh, they all get in except Triss. She's not ready because she's the one that almost died in Sodden. If you guys remember, it took Tissaia, Vilgefortz, and Artorias to stabilize her. And those are like three of the biggest and most like, you know, pronounced mages in, in the Brotherhood. So uh, she definitely went through some shit. From there, after that, after kind of tells him that she's not ready to get in, the scene cuts over to Stregobor, and he's addressing the Brotherhood. And Stregobor says, You remember Falca. From your studies, you know she was a power-hungry mud of a girl who cried, Death to all kings! When Vriadonk spurned her elven mother, bent on revenge, she slaughtered nobility, priests, even civilians with her bare hands. It wasn't enough, though. She preyed on foolish followers, incited a rebellion, and together they burned cities to the ground and sent rivers of innocent blood down the streets of Redania and Tamaria. Anything to reclaim power. And that's when the historian Istrid, he walks in, he says, That's not true. Falca was a girl forgotten by her family. She was trying to rightly recover her throne. And Shregobor tells him, You weren't there, boy. And Istrid says, No, I'm a historian. Shregobor says, Falca was quarter elven, just as Yennefer is. So Istrid kind of laughs it off. He's like, what are you saying? That Yennefer is related to Falca? Shregobor says, of course not. A historian should know bloodlines better. But history does have a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? And I was there. I was there when Falca destroyed Mirth and all the mages in it. Her violence etched here forever. And then he, like, unraveled his hands and, like, revealed nubs where his hands should have been. So it leads me to question, like, is it, are his hands really gone and he just magics them there? Or does he really not have hands and they're just nubs? I don't really know. Um, but anyways, to get back to the quote, he says, I have always tried to protect our institutions, to protect all of you. If we allow Vilgefortz and Tissaia to take charge of our council, if we allow our power to be diluted by elven blood... Thanid will be led to ruin. Istrid says, no, Yennefer would never do something like that. I'm sure of it. And Stregobor says, King Verdonk was sure of his sweet daughter Falca, and then she axed him in the neck. The only certainty on this continent, my boy, is that no one is ever what they seem. And then the scene cuts over to Yennefer and Triss, and they're speaking alone. And Triss basically tells Yennefer that she, Triss, needs to find a new way forward with who she is now and not who she used to be before the Battle of Sodden. And because basically she's so, like, she she feels lost in a way, right? Because remember like, in, in the first uh, season of The Witcher, she was in Tamaria and she helped Geralt, like, fight the streak. And she was very, like, personal, very, like, like smiley and outgoing and helpful. Now she does, almost seems like a shell of herself. And so she she's trying to figure out how to make, make, make a new way forward after all these bad things have happened. And that's going to come up to play later on more next week. Now the scene cuts to Cirilla, and she's again attempting that obstacle course thing. And she fails time and time again, but keeps getting back up. And keeps trying. And even Lambert and Cohen tell her to come back and that enough's enough. Well, she finally makes it past the first part of the course. Where, like, the swinging wooden bars were trying to knock her off the platform. She makes it past that very first one. And then she attempts a second. Which is basically a spinning like a spinning thing of wood spears. And she tries to, like, like maneuver around it. And she gets cut immediately and knocks her off. And then she's bleeding on the ground. Uh, and Lambert <laughs> says... 
Nice try, princess. Admit it. You belong in a castle, not our keep. And the scene cuts back to Sintra, where some sort of commander named Hack is airing his concerns to Fringilla about the incoming migration of the elves to Sintra, and asks how she plans to feed them and train them and how she can be sure they won't impede Nilfgaard's mission. And Fringilla tells him basically the white flame always finds a way. And at that point, Francesca joins Fringilla in a room and they discuss what comes next. And here's a little bit of their dialogue. Francesca says, I was told by someone masquerading as Ithlene to go to Sintra to find Dolblathana. You were told by someone masquerading as... Fringilla like, finishes the sentence, Emir. To bring you here to fight against the people who have wronged us both. And Francesca replies, You suffered great losses in Sodden. You need a new army. And Fringilla says, We are looked upon as imperialists. People, they see our black armor, and they assume that we are here to destroy the world. But we're not. We are trying to feed, to house, to liberate. You can help us. And Francesca asks, How? Fringilla says, The elves know the continent better than any man, northern or Nilfgaard, ever could. I want your partnership. The deathless mother may have brought us together, but you can trust me. Francesca says, I want a home for my people. But more importantly, I want a place for our future to begin. And she puts her hand on her stomach and it reminds you that she's pregnant. And she says, Can you promise me that? From there, the scene cuts over to Yennefer. And she bumps into Vilgefortz, and he tells her that he feels bad for having to take credit for Sodden while he and Tissaia make the push for Artorias and Stregobor seats. And so she walks past, and that's the first guy that she bumped into. Then she walks past, and then she comes across this like prison cell room that the mages are holding the prisoner Kahir in. If you guys remember who Kahir is, he was one of the commanders at the Battle of Sodden for Nilfgaard, and he was actually a badass that pretty much whooped Vilgefort's ass in single combat with the sword. So... Um, just to kind of give everyone a reminder of who that is. And he's kind of a shell of himself. He's been in isolation. His hair is all straggly. He's got like an unkept beard. He looks like he hasn't eaten in weeks. You know, it looks like a night and day different from where we kind of remember him from season one. But Kahir tells Yennefer that Fringilla used to talk about Yennefer and how Fringilla actually envied her. And then she said, then he ends it by saying, then, meaning doesn't envy her now. So she leaves the room, and then she bumps into Stregerbor. And it's like, there's so many guys that she's bumping into in this little strain of things down in the passages underneath uh, Aratusa here. And Stregerbor, real, real creepy guy, man. Real creepy guy. He, uh, he, <laughs> he puts his hand on her, and then, like, inside her mind, like, like holding her there, he kind of traps her mentally and brings her to a room, a secluded room, in, like, while she's kind of trapped in chains. And it's weird because, like, they don't actually physically go to this room. He's just, like, making it in her mind like she's trapped there. And he's kind of going through everything. And I'll talk a little bit about their dialogue here. Yennefer says, I always pegged you as a pervert. Stregovor says, Oh, I'd never demean myself with the likes of you, quarter blood. Yennefer says, I prefer Hero of Sodden. Stregovor replies, Heroes don't go mysteriously missing for a month after battle. Yennefer says, you know, it's telling that you don't understand such complex concepts as prisoners of war. Stregobor says, so you were in the company of Nilfgaard. Don't get shy now. We have so much more to talk about. Tell me how it felt to control fire. Yennefer screams, fuck you! 
<laughs> and then Stregovor says, Or, why you return to Eretuza, a place you once so colorfully conveyed that you'd... What was it? Burn it all down? No? Well, if you don't want to chat about your true intentions, I'll be forced to use a method your dear to say has grown so fond of. Then he grabs her head and penetrates her mind. And what this kind of reminded me of, and you can tell me if you think so too, reminded me of like a cumulancy a little bit, a cumulancy in Harry Potter where like, you know, they hit that spell and you can kind of get glimpses of the person's mind. Is that what it kind of looked like to you as well? Oh, exactly. Uh, just a quick side note here. Like one thing that I love about this series is it kind of reminds me of like if Harry Potter and Game of Thrones combined, like this dude seems like a, and I'm a Snape guy, but he's kind of like Snape mixed with Peter Baelish. <laughs> like a freak, dude. But I'll turn it back to you. Sorry not to interrupt you there. Not at all. And I would say, like, to, to talk about that point, like, I I think he's a lot weirder than those two combined. Just because, like, Snape, at, at the end of the day, like, he had good intentions, I guess you could say. Like, at the end of, at, at the end of all, Snape, even though he treated people poorly, he still, you know did the right thing when it counted like this guy just seems like a bad dude man like he just doesn't care who he hurts what he does as long as like his seat's safe in the council and that's just what it seems like to me so i definitely kind of see like an older baelish type character but i don't know if i would add snape to it i don't really know but I just, it's, his it's, magic it's, is like snape but his intentions <laughs> is like fucking dude he's he seems like a creep to me i mean maybe we've only seen maybe i'm misjudging him because we've only seen him really in depth in like this episode so far right but i mean just the fact of the way he's trying to play the council and he hasn't had yennefer's side at all and it, just like you said he basically pulled a toby mcguire and said let's find some shade hot legs and like pulled yennefer in chains in her mind uh, that doesn't give me the the good guy vibe <laughs> that makes sense. What are your thoughts on that? By the way, uh, before we kicked it off, we never got a malice in the chalice. So malice in the chalice to you, brother. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> but just to get your thoughts, I'll let you ju jump back into it. Yeah. Uh, so we got to see him in the very first episode of the first season when that had the whole... Like, remember, he tried to hire Geralt to kill Renfrey, and he didn't want right. to do that and stuff. So he's always kind of seemed like a shady piece of shit honestly i don't really think there's much good to him at this point in his life it's like one of those things like maybe he was a a great mage in his prime and you know did a lot of helpful things for the continent but maybe someone who's like kind of stuck in their old ways and not evolving with the the way the world is going you know he still has those prejudices against the elves and stuff so it's like kind of that saying where you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain and i'm really starting to see that with stregobor here that he just kind of seems like a piece of shit and that in his mind he thinks he's doing the right thing because he's trying to protect the continent in his mind but he's just going about it all wrong so that's my thought process on like what he is just someone that like is just so out of tune with reality thinks that yeah he's doing the right things and reality is like i said kind of a piece of shit I agree 100%, man. I'll let you jump back into it. Sorry to jump in your way there. All good, man. So, yeah, uh, he starts getting info as Yennefer is screaming, and then, uh, you know, he's getting the flashes, like I said, very similar to the Clemency. Like, she's, he's seeing, like, patches of, like, her her travel sensata and, like, how she was, like, a captive of the elves, like, where they set up camp, how they, they got to the one location there. And, and finally, Taseya screams, Stop! And uses her magic to launch... Uh, 
Stregobor against the far wall and the enchantment breaks and you can see how much to well, how big of a toll it took on Yennefer because she like almost collapses onto to say his like side there and so to say it tells Stregobor that he will answer for this violation and I was like yeah fuck yeah <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this the scene then cuts to Geralt and Vesemir and they're returning to the keep and they realize that Cirilla wasn't tending the horses as she was instructed to and Geralt says tell, says to Vesemir she's like she's a quick study if impatient, Investmere is like, sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, then uh, Cohen, he in a slight panic approaches and calls for Geralt to follow him. And so they, they kind of go over to that spot where he's leading them. And it's Cirilla, and she's still not giving up, and she's back on the course. And now she has a crowd of witches around her watching and cheering on while Lambert shouts instructions. And so she makes it finally past the spinning spears. She makes it up the slippery steps. She jumps onto the moving platform, and she pretty much gets to the very end, but just doesn't quite stick the landing. And Geralt approaches right at that time where she hit, hits that landing and falls off to the side, and Geralt looks down at her and says, So close. <laughs> <laughs> then from there, the scene cuts to Desea, and she's bringing Stregobor before the Brotherhood Council, telling them what he did to Yennefer and how he committed treason against one of their own. And this is where some great dialogue takes place here. Stregobor says... To say his pet, Yennefer of Vengerberg survived fire magic, survived imprisonment by Nilfgaard, survived capture by elves, and now returns to these hallowed halls unscathed, and we're to unquestioningly believe that she's here with good intentions? I'm not saying she is the enemy. I don't know. Do you? I'm simply saying, Vilgefort said, if you claim to want to defend the Brotherhood, as you do so ferociously before Sodden, then you must also be willing to defend it from threats inside these walls. And so from there, Tissaia actually goes outside of the council chambers and tells Yennefer that the ruling of the Brotherhood was that they have no other choice that to prove Yennefer's innocence that she will have to kill the Nilfgaardian prisoner. And Yennefer says, is this Vilgefort's talking or you? And Tissaia responds, the hero kills the enemy. And Yennefer says, which will prove what? And says like that you're not a spy. Yennefer shouts back, or that I am a killer. I'd be gift wrapping yet another reason for Stregobor to vilify me. And Tissaia tells her, well, then tell them the truth. Yennefer asks, what? And Tissaia says that you are not a threat because you have lost your magic. I know you to your core. Your pain is my pain. Yennefer kind of tries like to swap that to the side, like not commit to know her knowing that it, uh, she doesn't have her magic. She's like, Triss is scarred, Sabrina's bruised, we're all in pain. And Tissaia says, yes. Yes, we are. And at that point, Yennefer kind of breaks and she says, for a month I've searched the continent trying every herb, every potion, every spell to get back what I had, what I deserve. Tell me how to save myself. Tissaia tells her, I, I cannot. And Yennefer shouts back, I don't believe you! And Tissaia grabs her and says, I want to pierce Kahir's mind, punish him, push him towards madness, all to find out what had happened to you. I would have done anything, but what is lost is lost. And Yennefer responds, Without it, I'm nothing. I'm stumbling through the darkness. Tissaia said, From the moment we met, you've been trying to fill a void. Power couldn't do it, even when you had it at your fingertips. What makes you think it's the answer now? 
And Yennefer says, because it's all I have left. And then the scene cuts to Cirilla getting patched up by Geralt. And Geralt tries to explain to Cirilla that witches are able to get hurt. And because of their supernatural abilities, they don't have to worry about it as much. But Cirilla herself doesn't have that luxury and that she has to be more careful. And Cirilla tells Geralt that he isn't training her enough and that she wants to be a great fighter. Which kind of led to some really cool dialogue between them real quick. Geralt says, I have known many who wanted to be great fighters in my time. Do you know where they are now? And Cirilla asks, where? Geralt says, in cemeteries. So Geralt actually notices a tree branch in Cirilla's room and he pulls it down and it breaks open the wall a little bit and inside he finds the Sintra sash that Cirilla kept with her. Then he smells something out of the ordinary. And before we figure out what happens, the scene cuts back over to Yennefer as she goes to leave Eratuza, but she gets stopped by Istrid on her way out. And Istrid grabs her and says, I lied to the council. I spent time amongst Nilfgaard followers. I talked to them, heard how they feel protected under the Emperor, how they feel welcomed. I haven't told anyone, but I trust you. And Yennefer tells him, I am not a spy. And Istrid responds, I'm leaving for Sintra tomorrow to help the elves who are migrating, to help people like, Nienfer cuts him off, like me? How heroic. If only you were asked to prove your loyalty by beheading a man. Ishtar responds, Stregobor has spies stationed on the towers outside. If you slip out in the night, you will be caught. But you were never one to go quietly, were you? And then, Yennefer has this strange vision, all in the color red, of an old woman taunting her and laughing and saying all like all that she's lost and what she deserves and telling Yennefer to come to her. And that's going to play a big role coming later on. Now from there, the scene does cut back to Cirilla and she's back to training. And this time, Cohen is giving her advice and going through the jewels with her and talking about like, like sword training. So Geralt comes up to her and asks her to describe the feeling that something's coming after her. And she says that she doesn't know. And Geralt asks, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you're trying to describe this feeling? And Cirilla tells him, a pull. It's like I'm being pulled. And Geralt asks, pulled towards what? And Cirilla says, I don't know. And Geralt said, well, if you were to follow that feeling, where would it take you? And Cirilla responds, the woods. So Geralt takes Cirilla out to the woods and she asks, what does it want with her? To which Geralt tells her about the wedding feast where Cirilla's mom exhibited uncontrollable magical power and how she destroyed the entire throne room. And Geralt says, given that you are her blood, I think you've inherited that power or something like it. And Cirilla asks, well, why didn't you tell me? And Geralt said, I didn't want to scare you if I was wrong. And Cirilla says, well, you said you'd never let anything happen to me and I trust you. Geralt laughs that off and says, good. It's about time. And she leads on following her instincts, and they come across Eskel's Leshy. And we know it's Eskel's Leshy because it was missing an arm. So Geralt and the Leshy start doing battle, but before it even really gets going, another larger creature, it kind of looks like a scorpion, ant, spider, centipede-looking thing, kills the Leshy from behind by jabbing its claw through the back of the Leshy's body and ripping it apart. Uh, like right straight down like unless she's supposed to be hard to kill and this thing like took it out in a second It was really crazy, but now this new creature And I'm, I'm gonna go into detail a little bit about what this creature is uh, Even though it's not really explained in this episode, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the uh, the monster descriptions later on in this episode 
But anyways, the new creatures start fighting with Geralt, and it knocks Geralt to the side and starts chasing Cirilla specifically. And that's going to be important too, then, to notate that it's chasing Cirilla. So the creature finally does corner Cirilla, and it's about to strike when Geralt jumps out of nowhere and does some badass sword combo, ending with cutting off the creature's head. Now it's badass. It looked really cool on screen. If you guys want to go watch that, do that. It was dope. Anyways, um, as, as after she does that, Cirilla and Geralt they kind of have a little moment. Cirilla says, less than perfect means death. And Geralt tells her Sir Laszlo would be proud. And now the scene cuts to Kahir being dragged in chains by the Brotherhood to be beheaded to prove Yennefer's loyalty. And Kahir says, if the white flame asks for my sacrifice, I am ready for the darkness. It is in blindness that we find our true strength. So Vilgefortz gives this big speech, and Tissaia reads off the names of the fallen mages. Just a whole show and spectacle they're doing for the northern kingdoms that are there. And think, speaking about like the northern kingdoms, two of the northern kings, Vizimir and Foltest, they start talking about how the mages are supposed to be their most trusted advisors, but they're becoming less and less trustworthy. And so they finally bring Kahir to the chopping block, and Vilgefortz says that Kahir's head will be uh, sent to Sintra, to let their voices be heard. And then the voice in Yennefer's head speaks again as she approaches Kahir with the axe that Vogelforts gives her to remove his head. And the voice says, Free yourself. Reclaim your power. Simply say the words. And then she swings down with the axe, but instead of cutting his head off, she cuts his chains off, freeing Kahir, and they run. And she starts knocking over the fire power, the fire pyres to give herself time to get away. And she finds a horse, jumps on it, and Kahir comes, like, you know, and f follows like, her out. And she goes, well, come on then. And jumps up there. And instead of killing this Nilfgaardian prisoner to prove her loyalty, she helps him escape on horseback with her. And now their fugitives on the run. And that's the end of the episode. And so... I thought it was pretty dope, man. I know I just talked for a little bit, so I'll turn it over to Chase to give his thoughts on the episode, What he, if he wanted to add anything, and his overall takeaways. It was a fantastic episode. I mean, I haven't seen so far of The Witcher, even season one, season two, I haven't seen a bad episode yet. Like, I thought it was excellent. Uh, the writing is absolutely fantastic. One thing I did just want to add, uh, you're going to talk about the monster, but when... Because this plays an important part for next episode. When Geralt killed it, he had to cut its head off. So that's how. So next episode, that's going to play a role. So he cut its head off. Uh, but it was badass. Remember, like she, it had backed Siri into a corner against the rock, and just to show how powerful this thing was, Jay Nelly's going to talk about it. But he had to. He jumps down and stabs it in the back and drags the blade then had to slash it two times and then cut its head off and that thing just looked like a beast and jay nelly's going to go on to that but biggest takeaways from this episode that i got was one um we're starting to see really like how bad siri wants it like siri i feel like uh she almost feels like she's being held back to a point but now she's starting to get, as we progress through this episode, understand what Geralt's saying, which is going to lead me into one of my debates later. But you really kind of do start to really feel this connection growing between Geralt and Ciri and how he looks at her almost like a father figure, almost like, you know, she wants to be a witcher. 
But I feel like in Geralt's mind, like he doesn't want that for her. Like he doesn't want her to go through the stuff he's gone through. Uh, and then, so I, I just love like how everything's progressing with their story arc. And then you have Yennefer on the other side of things. You know, she's really going against the grain here. Um, you know, she was trying to be they to say a wanted her or Tasia, whatever her name is. What's her name? Tasia, right? Yeah, you had it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. I doubted, doubted myself. <laughs> he can be taught. <laughs> Anyways, um, they were gonna use Jennifer, make her almost be uh, like prove her loyalty by cutting off Kahir's head, and she's going against the grain, but at the same time. She's also hearing visions from something that doesn't exactly seem like it's so friendly. So, you know, she, now she's on this wild story arc over there. And it, it just leaps and bounds. It takes another turn after another turn that raises more questions. But at the same time, gives you this feeling of this is exactly where these characters are supposed to be. And um, I, I think it's great. I think it's really cool i always got to be loyal to danny but yennefer is pretty badass too so had to admit it after this episode that was fucking impressive <laughs> what she pulled off in front of those kings so uh and i just even the political spectrum too like i know we always talk about you know these big arcs like game of thrones harry potter all this different stuff that has um you know kind of organization between good and bad but what's so great about this too is it's kind of lord of the rings game of thrones aspect like you have the different countries that are trying to pick sides and allies uh and i just think it's great and i was really impressed with it what about you man yeah i agree uh i think that this is one of the better episodes that they've had because a lot of things start coming to a head right the the mages find out that yennefer's still alive and that actually you know you think it'd it'd be cause a lot of like solutions and like rejoicing uh, that she's around because she's the one that kind of saved them from the battle of sodden but in actuality, it caused a lot more complications and problems. <laughs> like, you know, if she was just gone and out of the picture, it was a pretty straightforward thing for the, all the mages where Bilgefortz and Tissaia, they want to make a push for Artorias and Stregobor's seat. But now that Yennefer's there, she, like, they had to basically tell her, hey, you can't really take any credit for what happened to Sodden because we need to have Vilgefortz take the credit since we're trying to, you know, usher in a new regime here at the council. Right. You know, so like her her appearance has actually complicated things more than it uh, helped. And on top of that, you see like how each side's manipulating the other side. Where Stregobor was talking about Falca, and he had all those like student mages around him. He's trying to tell them that like Yennefer could be very similar, and history could repeat itself because she's a quarter blood of elves. And we kind of see you know the sort of prejudice that you know certain people have towards other races in their area, right? And it, it, it brings a lot of things like to head, and I, I, on top of that, we start to see, and I, I, I could have used this being slowed down a little bit, like Cirilla's uh, accomplishments and like progression as her training, but she's starting to get better at it. She's starting to get through like the obstacle course thing that she wasn't even ready for in the first place. So I think she's progressing a little too quickly for my liking, just because I like to see like the struggle first. I like to really kind of think that oh it might never happen, and all of a sudden like a big you know cosmic event takes place and that's when the like the everything kind of snaps into gear i like that a little bit better but it, I, I don't i don't hate seeing how it's playing out it's just one of those things that i personally prefer but um you know on, on top of that Geralt's kind of balancing uh the on, on the you know the double-edged sword of 
I need to prepare her, but like I, I, I don't want to put her too far of harm's danger, uh, harm's way or in danger, I should say. And you, you see how that kind of he doesn't really know what to do because he wants to keep her safe, but then tells her to follow her instincts, and she leads him out into the woods. And you got these two monsters that he's got to fight now, where she's the main target, and we'll figure out why Sorrow's the main target with these two specific monsters next week. And so, it, it, there's just a lot of things that go on into it. Like, the, the action scenes are really cool. Like, you know, the breaking of the chains to running away and knocking the fire pyres over because you can't use magic inside that ceremony. That was another big piece I should have mentioned. Yeah. Is that, you know, they blocked all sorts of magic there. So, that's why they couldn't just stop her from leaving because in those events, they can't use magic. So, she was able to get away. It was a smarter way to do that than to try to leave Eratusa in the night where she, like, Istrid kind of talked her out of it because he said that Stregobor has spies everywhere. They Well, they could have used magic to stop her then. Well, this time, like, you know, in those ceremonies, they bar any sort of magic from those areas and, you know, it kind of worked against them because now she's on the run with Kai here. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just really interesting how there, there's so many different, not timelines, but, like, perspectives of, like, what's going on. you got Frangilla and, and Francesca and the elves and, Ner- and, and with Nilfgaard and Sintra. And then you've got Geralt and Cirilla and Vesemir and the Witcher is over in Kaimor. And then you got Yennefer and, like, Tessaia and, and uh, Vilgefortz over in Eratusa. And so there's just so many things to kind of keep track on, but none of them are like the the backside story. They're all super important and very, very key. And it, it, why I like it is because you have to pay attention to detail to figure out what's going on and how they all intersect with each other. Because even though they're in different areas, they still talk about things that are other other the other people are going through that they don't know it. Like that witch in the forest. That like could be you know somewhat something that was being spoken about in Kaimor, and even though it was, was Frangilla and and Yennefer that were captured last week, you know, by them over there and had that weird interaction with that that uh, spirit in the forest and stuff there. So it's just one of those things where everything ties into each other, but they're in different locations and you have to keep up with everything. And so it really kind of, right. uh, it, it take, it's not just about enjoying the action scenes. It's not just about, you know, seeing how cool things look on screen. It, it makes you think and it makes you pay attention because if you don't pay attention, there's a lot of things that you can miss that were either foreshadowed or things that come up later on that are going to be important that you could have picked up on earlier. So I just, I'm really impressed with the way, like I said, like you said, the writing is pretty fantastic. And, you know, it seems to me that they've kind of really taken, you know, following the, the details of the book to heart and, and really tried to do their best with that. I know like certain characters, names have changed and things of that nature, but um, for the, for the most part, this is, you know, very similar to, you know, we always kind of talk about, I, I myself tend to not enjoy always comparing it to other fantasy works but it very right. much reminds me of how game of thrones started where it followed the books yeah. very very well like at, at the very beginning and that's why it became one of the best you know tv series of all time until they ran out of what happened in the novels and they had to come up with it themselves you know so like right. you know it very much reminds me similar to how they're going along and taking their time with it and making it right and I, I'm okay waiting two years for a season if it comes out like this and I'm enjoying like following it and there's not so many plot holes that I can find right away. And it's funny because now that I watched the other episode and I'll talk about it more next week, the one plot hole I thought may have been one that I spoke about last week about them not being able to make Witchers, well, that got revealed in episode four. So like, you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty great, you know? So uh, if you ask me my overall takeaways of the episode, I think it's following along the string of events and it's keeping me engaged and interested and it's overall, it's it's it was a great episode, and I've got nothing to really complain about it. Um, 
I'd say taking notes on it's uh, interesting, especially when we start talking about some of the dialogues <laughs> that you know that are important and typing those out here on on the notes. But aside of that, like it's it was great. I really enjoyed it. One thing I I do want to say on a, a side note here is one thing that's great about it too. You know, and you know, and it's very tough too because this show, like the way it's written out, just like you said, it is very similar to the way Game of Thrones started and stuff. But one thing that's great too is the pacing is fantastic. Like, there's no part where I was bored. Like, you know, it's tough, especially for directors a lot of times, pulling stuff from books that are so massive. Like, I mean, this one. Uh, I have the one next to me right here if you're looking on the visuals on YouTube um, and I showed it last week on our, our promo where it was just on you know uh, on our table here in the studio it's very hard for directors a lot of times to get the details right and keep it not boring like just an example you know uh, J.R.R. Tolkien took four pages describing a leaf in Lord of the Rings so, I mean, I think the pacing is fantastic with the way they've done it, not just with the monsters, but the character story arcs and development. And just like you said, it it is very similar to kind of like how it started with, you know, the Starks and the Targaryens, and they were in different spots, but everything kind of interlays in each other eventually. Um, and I think one thing great about this show that shows it really does have so much potential, which not that I want to... Um, say that I don't have any trust or, you know, um, I have faith in the directors alone with their own writing, but the books were written, you know, uh, you know, almost what, 20 years ago, something like that. So like all the books are out. So like if you follow this right, it has potential to be uh, a very great fantasy fiction franchise. And that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. I, I'm really excited for the future of the show. Uh, and we're only, you know, not even halfway through it. Next week we'll be halfway through season two here. And, you know, I'm I'm really excited to see where it goes. And what's also been interesting, too, is that it always introduces something new every single time. And we kind of mentioned this just in passing. And, you know, we can talk about it more next week as well, too. But, like, there is a different monster in every single episode so far, at least yeah. in season two. <laughs> And I feel like in season one, there was as well, you know, so it's, it's something, it's not like getting boring. It's not like, you know, you're fighting orcs for 24 seven and that's like your main character. Like you're getting something new, something refreshing and exciting every time. And it always leaves you questioning, like, what is it? How did this like happen? Like, you know, it's really cool. I really do think one of the strengths of this uh, franchise, what we've seen so far is that they've did a great job coming up with monsters with abilities that aren't similar to the other monsters they've already come up with with how they look a lot different and like like a backstory on each and it's been really cool uh it's been really cool to see on screen i actually i admit it i haven't read the book so i don't really know terribly too much about how the events go on there but it seems to me that it, it follows along especially when i hear people talking about how how deeply involved henry cavill is in and creating this and going through the the scenes one by one and making sure that they're using specific quotes from specific pages and you know so to me it leads me to believe that they are following a, a really deep and, and consistent base with at least what's on page on pages and on on you know paper i guess i could say but 
With that being said, man, I guess I'll turn it over to you to start our debates. Of what do you got for us today for your debate? Yeah, man, uh, I got three of them, but I'll try to make it quick. Uh, first one, interesting. So now we know Francesca's pregnant. So obviously, you know, the way they've been talking about this as being so significant for the elves and being in such a high role. I'm assuming, I honestly don't know who the father is. I'm assuming it's Phil Evandrel. Um, do you think this baby is going to play an important role for these alliances that are about to take place? And the elves, I say hopefully, I mean, you can pick whatever side you want for the elves. I'm always loyal to Legolas, who's in another franchise. <laughs> but So I feel like I have to support the elves. But uh, do you think it will play a role in hopefully, or whatever side you take, in the elves, I guess, rising up for social justice? What do you think? I don't know if it's going to help with like alliances and allegiances, like the the, the child being born. Because remember, she's been pregnant before. It's just none of her right. babies have come to full term. And so this is the first time in like that, that weird witch in the forest that we'll learn a little bit more about later on she's the one that told her like this is the baby that's going to and like that's not necessarily a great omen if like the evil witch demon is the one telling you <laughs> that that this is the baby that's gonna be born finally so it's like that doesn't to me that screams that it could be uh you know maybe on the on the evil side of things or you know maybe not the best uh you know way that you want to <laughs> learn about a child coming into the world from an evil witch demon. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I do think what it will do at the very least is I think it will give the elves some prominence. I think that it, the baby is going to be, you know, very powerful and a very prominent figure and a character moving forward in the series. Again, assuming that it comes to term and that, you know, it is born like, like it's on track to be. Um, I think it's going to help bring the elves a prominence, you know, but I don't know if it's so much going to like lead people to side with them or anything like that. I just think, because right now the elves are kind of like the downtrodden, like the second class citizens of the continent. And people look down on them and they've been like refugees. Like remember they were moving throughout the woods, their own camp, which is like basically all the elves that were left. And now they were able to migrate into Sintra as this alliance with Nilfgaard. Um, but like, I, I feel like at the end of the day, Elves want their former glory. I want to kind of be restored to, to former glory because they were the the prominent you know race before the humans came and kind of fucked everything up for them. And so um, I think that this child being born is definitely going to help the elves rise to prominence and maybe bring prosperity to their specific race. I don't know so much if it's going to help with allegiances and alliances going forward. Outside of the fact that if the elves rally around who francesca supports that could help that army um that's the only way i could really see that but that's that's my take on it what do you think yeah i think i think you're right i have to agree with you 100 percent because we i mean it's hard to tell because the elves are looked at as such a low class right now um it's not like in other franchises where you know they were kind of looked at which they are very knowledgeable smart and it's even shown like how they do have that ancient history in this series but with that being said just like you said like it's 
the classes are switched here. Like they're looked very low. So it's hard to say. I mean the the inner child in me, I would say, wants to see this like elf be like the ultimate badass, like be a new king like Philavandral, almost like Aragorn in <laughs> Lord of the Rings, like rises up to take refuge. But that would be a little bit probably very unrealistic. And that would have to be, you know, I guess maybe you can make like a spinoff series after this show is dead in, in 30 years or something or <laughs> in 20 years, like with that kid, like rising up and being a man now or something. I don't know. But uh, I think you're right. Like, I think it's, I think if anything, it helps maybe give them hope. It's hard to even say if it will really help Frangilla because how much will it really help her? So I have to agree with you hundred percent. Next one I would say is so as we've seen in this episode how Siri is like diehard wanting to do the things that the witchers do but we can see how Geralt doesn't exactly want that for her and has tried to remind her she is not like a witcher and she is you know can take uh, efficient damage and be mortally wounded what do you think Geralt's what do you think the future is that Geralt sees in Ciri because obviously he sees a lot of potential in her but in my perspective he's just wanting her to learn how to defend herself in case they ever get in a situation where he has his hands tied so what do you think the future is that he sees in Ciri yeah I, I think that you're on the right track there for sure um, I think that he his main prerogative is to teach her how to defend herself so maybe if it not only if his hands are tied but remember what he says he's like i'm not going to be around forever to protect her you know what i mean so like even when he's gone like he wants to feel confident that she'll be able to take care of herself and not rely on someone else to come save her you know she that that was the whole argument he kind of had with besimir back in episode two last week about like not really you know wanting to have this life for her like how he wants to protect her and, and then when he said you know uh i remember that conversation that he had with Vesemir. he's like well were you ready when you had a bunch of kids you know and he's like no he's like yes but you protected us anyway he's like no i taught you how to defend yourself and so like right. now he's like shoot now i gotta kind of think of it from that perspective because he's right because i you know him himself in my mind Geralt himself is thinking like i wouldn't be who i am if Vesemir didn't teach me what i needed to know to go out in the world and be who i am so now it's probably my responsibility to make sure Cirilla has that same opportunity to go out in the world and be who she can be, uh, especially with all the like the built-up power in her as well. So I think the main overall, I don't know if he's got like a a plan for her, like what he wants. So he, you know, I I think I know what her overall story arc is going to be. Like I like, am just being someone who likes to think ahead, I, I believe her overall story arc is going to be ending up taking back the throne of Sintra by the end of this series, you know, and she'll be the queen and she'll, you know, be like Calanthe, like her grandmother, but a lot more powerful because she's more controlled and she's got magical powers. I remember Calanthe had skipped her generation. It did go to her, it did go to uh, Calanthe's daughter or Cirilla's mother, but we learned that she never was able to control her powers. So like, she kind of like was off and so, like Cyril is almost like a mix of the two. Like she's got the powers, right? Uh, but she's like, can, like, like what I think is like she'll be able to control them, 
versus Calanthe not having the powers but being a fantastic warrior. And then the mo- the mother like not really being a fantastic warrior but having the powers. Like Sorrow is going to be a good combination of of the two. I can find like fit that balance is what I think her overall story arc is going to be, and she's going to reclaim the throne as a queen of Sintra. But talking, I don't know if Geralt. The reason I say that, there's was a long-winded way of me saying, I don't know if like Geralt has that same plan in mind for her. I, I more so believe his main goal and his main prerogative is to make sure that she can defend herself in all situations so that way she isn't relying on anyone else in case he is not around or in case something happens where his hands are tied and she needs to fend for herself. That's what I think. I think you're on the right track there. Uh, give me your thoughts. I, I agree 100%. Um... I have a question for you on that about your the story arc with Cirilla, you think? Because I agree with you. I think that's eventually going to be the end goal. How hard do you think that's going to be for her, though, now that you have all these different alliances that would Nilfgaard and the alliances they're taking? And, I mean, clearly there's going to be... Look at fucking Stregobor. I don't trust him as far as I can fucking see him. Like, sorry, and you can't even see his fucking hands. Like, sorry, just saying it. Uh, I mean, clearly you're going to have some animosity there with her trying to take back the throne. Do you think that's going to wind up ending in a war? Or do you think there's some people that are just going to fall in line of her loyalty to her blood, her bloodline? I think it's going to be like, I think it's going to be neither of those, as weird as that sounds. Like, I think the wars are gonna, the war is going to happen regardless, but I don't believe it's going to be uh, like because of Cirilla. I think the war is going to happen between the elves and Nilfgaard in the northern kingdoms because Nilfgaard rose up and tried to infiltrate and take over Sodden, and that kind of was the, the first battle of this big war. So the war, in my opinion, is going to happen regardless. I don't believe like the war is going to really be... Like, Ciri is not going to be the main cause of the war. I think she's going to be someone that's a part of it. But remember, in Season 1, and the whole big thing here is that, for some reason, Nilfgaard wants Cirilla. We don't know why yet. They, like, they remember he tried, like, the Black Knight tried to kidnap her and take her, like, hostage and bring her before Kai here, but she got away because she used her, like, screeching power or, or whatever. So, like, we, we, like, the show's done a good job of making us kind of forget that Nilfgaard wants Cirilla for something. We don't know what that is. I don't know if it's just like to take her captive, or maybe like they also know that she's got some special ability, or what it may be. So I think like her story arc is going to be complicated. I think eventually she's going to lose Geralt's protection, whether it's because like she just butts heads with him to the point where she just wants to go off on her own, or maybe like she's forced to for, for based on circumstances. And then I, I do believe like she's going to kind of go into. Uh, you know other other characters as well. She's gonna intersect with other characters. Maybe Yennefer. I know we start to see like you know next episode. She already has some sort of uh, connection with another mage, and I want to give it away for next week. But um, you know, so I, I start. I'm, I'm starting to think that she's just gonna kind of bounce around, and like at some point, I'm assuming she is gonna get captured. She probably will get rescued. You know, and the overall end will be is that she's gonna take back the throne of Sintra. But I don't believe that the war is gonna start over it or anything like that. I just I think the war is gonna happen regardless, and she's gonna kind of make her way through. And again, this is very. Yeah. Again, I, I don't love to to compare, but sometimes that's just I don't have anything else I can draw a comparison to to kind of put <laughs> it in people's minds. But very similar to Arya's like her story arc, 
where she started off as someone who was like weak and couldn't defend herself, and then she like was trapped in Heron Hall, and then she like, got like saved by Jack and Agar, and she you know has gone her way you know to taken by the Brotherhood without banners, and you know she's getting a little bit better each time and each time, and then she got stolen by the Hound, and then you know her and the Hound start you know, like they like he kind of toughens her up a bit, and she starts you know becoming a little more of a badass with him, but you know she's still not at his level yet, and then. Brienne, Brienne of Tarth, like, you know, fights the Hound and, like, beats him in single combat, and then she takes a boat over to, uh, to Bravos and has that time in the House of Black and White, and then she gets her eyes taken, and now she, and she comes a badass and she comes back. So it's, I think it's going to be something like that. A very convoluted right. story arc that ends up where she was, where she rightfully belongs, which is, you know, the Queen of Centra. So that's what I think. I agree with you. I have to agree 100%. And you're right. I, I hate to compare because it, it's not the same. I mean, one thing I think this show has over Game of Thrones is the monsters. Like, I mean, for you forget there's dragons in this show, too. We just haven't really seen them. We had a little glimpse in season one, but that's about it. But, uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I'm, I'm really excited for where her arc goes. Um, but I think, I think you're right. I think Geralt... In a way, I think Geralt in his mind, maybe she sort of reminds him of her grandmother because people forget he used to serve her, and that takes us back to season one. Um, but I think, really, I think it's more of just like that father figure type rule. I think, in my personal opinion, I think Geralt, maybe he doesn't even look that far into that is just more about almost like how the hound looked at Arya. Like it's all about, well, I can't say the hound. <laughs> Brienne, I guess, looked at Sansa, right? Like just really was more about <laughs> the hound didn't give a fuck. <laughs> hound didn't give two fucks, really. <laughs> the hound was messed up. I mean, I guess he kind of did, but whatever. Go listen to our other episode, season one. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but my point is, I think he's really looking more for her like family at this point i don't think it's more of even seeing like a political role uh looking that far into the future i think it's more of just taking it day by day and just holding up the honor of protecting her and getting to where he's trying to get her to but i agree with you 100 percent uh last debate and i'll turn it over to you is so yennefer you see how you know we've seen in this episode in a way you think she is on Tissaia's side uh, or still sees her as like a close friend. But we've seen her decision based on, I call her the lady in the wood or like the, you know, the visions, voice, whatever she had, right? Do you think Yennefer truly trusts Tissaia or do you think deep down she truly hasn't forgiven her since the Battle of Sodden? And everything that took place based on her decision to free Kair. I think specifically if we're talking just Yennefer and Tissaia's relationship and not Yennefer's relationship with the Brotherhood Council themselves, mm -hmm. I do believe that they are they are close and they remain close. I do think that Tissaia her decisions aren't really what she feels is right is she but to say has been kind of the person to go along with the the majority ruling of the council and so she tells yennefer the things that yennefer doesn't want to hear but i can't ever say that i think to say is a 
purposely trying to deceive Yennefer or trying to cause harm to her. I really do think to say it truly cares about Yennefer. And I think Yennefer sees that overall, but I think Yennefer more so doesn't agree with a lot of the rulings and, and decisions the council, the council makes. And to say it being an extension of that, she I, I think she tries to say it herself, but I think that you know to say it being an extension of the council and her not agreeing with what the council's doing, it causes her to take actions that you know almost seem like she is going against to say it. And I don't think that's what her uh, goal is. I don't think that's what she's trying to do. I don't think she looks at to say it as a bad person or like someone that she needs to um, distance herself from or over you know or like like win in spite of her. I think she. She truly cares about them because remember you saw what happened with Stregobor when she went into that mine to say it knocked his ass clean across the damn room. Like see what she right. wanted. Yeah, she like so it's clear that that she truly cares about Yennefer like from her deepest being of her soul. And so I, I don't think that Yennefer has any animosity towards to say it. And well, she probably has some, but not because it's to say his fault. I think I think she's smart enough to realize that this isn't to say his wishes. These aren't what she wants to happen. She's just being like the the middleman telling Yennefer what the decision is and Yennefer's kind of got to make her own choices based on what they're trying to decide for her not necessarily to say it specifically so to answer your question I I do think she trusts to say it as a person I don't think she trusts to say it as a member of the council uh and you know she doesn't trust the rulings and judgments of the council and f- because of that she's got to kind of take action against that to save herself that's what I think I agree with you uh, I think in a way, I mean, one thing we didn't touch on much because it's, it's not that important, but when Yennefer knocked over the pyres, you can kind of see the face of Tissaia looking at Yennefer. And they were talking earlier in this episode about how she was mentioning, you know, tell them you lost your magic or, you know, bringing up, really trying to find Yennefer ways to prove to the council her loyalty and i think you're right i think in the end she truly does care about yennefer and you can see it based on the way her face is when yennefer's knocking over the pyres and escaping with kair almost like i was really hoping you would just go through with this not because i want to bring you pain but this is what i believed would have let the council be on your side so that i could support you so I, I agree with you 100%. Um, yeah, man, let me turn it over to you. And then also I want you to tell us about that monster we heard about today too. For sure. I'll tell about the monster after this debate because I only have one. And my debate is, and this is an interesting one because there's a lot of evidence could, that could point to either side. But in season one, it seemed pretty clear that Nilfgaard were, quote unquote, the bad guys, like the, the evil people that were trying to infiltrate and take over. With what we're seeing now, with the Northerners kind of, you know, they're being a little sketchy themselves in their treatment of elves, for example, and like, you know, how, like, what they want to do and how they want to defend themselves and, and attack and, and take back over Sintra to, to, you know, kind of keep everything status quo or so to speak. Now that we kind of learn more about, you know, Amir and, you know, his plans to liberate and, what Frangilla was saying, like, you know, they don't want to conquer, they want to free people, they want to house, they want to clothe, they want to, like, make, like, a better world in their mind, and now you see Yennefer herself, she even cuts Kyer's, like, chains free and runs off with him, you know, assumingly to go to Centris, like, 
my question is, is do we still think Nilfgaard's the bad guys or has the Northerners kind of become the bad guys? Like, where do you stand on whose side is quote unquote right? I guess like that, that's my question. This is an interesting question. And, and this is why I love the show so much because you do have that political side to things. You almost don't know whose side to choose, like who's right. Who Besides, I guess, Geralt, like you feel like you have to take Geralt's side just because he's on the damn cover of everything. Right. Like, I mean, without Geralt, like you don't have the show. So, and Geralt's never tried to like actually hurt anybody. He just like does his own thing and protects shit. So like, I feel like that's the only one I can take his side. Um, but I don't think we can really say they're the bad guys as more of just doing what they believe is right because especially it kind of leads almost into next episode we'll get into which we won't give anything away but we go you know we really get into like some well the king that was in this episode at the very end it gets really into his relationships there and what they see is right and wrong and with the elves and all that my direct answer would be no but they have some very bad practices like they have they do some fucked up things <laughs> like i'm sorry well my I question mean, my question is like which side are you taking like which side's the bad side which side's the good side like what do you think in that side of the north yeah yeah i think that's the problem though is i can't take any side because i don't agree with either side if any side i really just agree with the witchers and how they just became kind of like mercenaries on their own looking out for their own self one of my favorite works of literature and movies and i know it's jay nelly's because we've watched it together like a hundred times achilles said uh men fight for kings that don't know where their orders came from <laughs> and that's like i feel like the witchers at least they take that side you don't see them siding really i mean even Geralt serving Ciri's grandmother like i feel like that was probably more of like a personal protection thing you don't see them too much really taking any sides but i think that's the problem is every side i've seen so far i mean you got the northerners and they're corrupt fucking shit of capturing prisoners and torturing them how they do and then the council's corrupt as fuck uh now and then Nilfgaard has always been looked as bad with their fucked up like mages and and sick sadistic tortures and then you have uh the elves we really don't know their side too much but you see they're fucking looked down on society and getting spit on and kicked like that's pretty fucked up if you ask me and then at the same time like you want to take Yennefer's side because like all the shit she's been through but at the same time she's even breaking away from like the traditional route she came from because she's seen how fucked up they are so I feel like the only ones you can even take their side is like the mercenaries here like I the problem is I see too much wrong in each side that's making an alliance to where I can say this is clearly the good guys this is clearly the bad guys. Like, I mean, technically you can try to take the council side with Vilgaforts and in Istrid, but then you got Stregobor, and now Istrid doesn't give a fuck about his own council. He's over here like breaking the rules secretly and over here confessing his confessing all his motives over to Yennefer just to 
make sure she has a pretty smile towards him so he can fuck off. I can't trust him as far as I can see him either. So I can't take any sides here. There is no sides. This is not, oh, I love Aragorn, so I really fucking hate Sauron. This is like everyone's fucking pieces of shit. If you really want to go into it here, and I like the Witchers, but they still do some fucked up shit. They were over here for centuries over here intoxicating people to make them able to fight monsters so they're basically immortal and and take them when they're starving in cells like that's pretty damn fucked up they didn't go rescue them in the cells and set them free they fucking injected them with poison and said you can go work for our fucking army you sick fucks like how nice are they i can't take anyone's side here if anyone i can take anyone's side it's just Geralt and Ciri, and that's only because Geralt knows the witchers are fucked up. He's just dealing with it because it's like a brotherhood. And then Ciri, at least she's just trying to, you know, do what's good and fight for the people. Like, these are the only two not trying to make any alliances and just do their own task. Everyone else, I can't even trust with the 10-foot pole Technically, I can trust Yennefer because she's really just trying to get her magic back at this point. But she's over here, like, taking up for the council at the Battle of Sodden. I haven't really seen her stand on her own fucking two feet yet. Not to compare Game of Thrones, but last time I checked, Danny did all that shit herself. She wasn't over here help, getting help from people. Danny brought her ass up, her own damn self, from Dragonstone and even had to melt her own brother's head off. So I got no sympathy, <laughs> absolutely no sympathy here, and I haven't even had a tipsy gypsy card, so you know where my loyalty lies. It's neutrality. Off to you, Jay Nelly. <laughs> well, first of all, let me just go ahead and recorrect that statement. Danny had plenty of help with Jorah, <laughs> Mormont, and Barristan Selmy, and Dario Naharis, and uh, a million other people that assisted her and kept her alive and, and a little biased a little biased you're a little biased for sure um my <laughs> my answer to the question is like it's it's really cool it's convoluted because there's a lot of bad on all sides you know Nilfgaard was kind of in the first season you can kind of point to them and be like those are the bad guys they're trying to take over center they're killing all these civilians and you know uh they started to work as they want and you almost think it's because of how, how uh Calanthe dismissed them and like Remember then when she was trying to marry her daughter off and the guy from Nilfgaard tried to take her hand in marriage and then she insulted Nilfgaard and basically called him a shithole like, of the Absolutely. South? And so it's like, maybe Nilfgaard was doing this as retaliation. Like, oh, we'll show you the shithole. We're going to take your whole kingdom. So, like, you start thinking maybe that's why. And, like, that's not a great reason to go to war to you know because you want revenge on someone that wronged you, right? You know, so it's like... Um, you could point to them in the first season and be like, oh, those guys are definitely bad guys. They came into the city that was not doing anything, and that the city just tried to defend itself. But then you learn more and more about what's going on here. And then, you, like you said, the, the, the mages, they're all over the place. Like, Vilgefort and, and Istrid and Tissaia are on one side, and Artorias and Stregobor are on the other side. They're more, like, you know, the, oh, it's kind of it's interesting. It's like 
generational differences. You know, the Artorias and Stregobor are super old. They want to keep everything the way they, they knew and grew up at with. And, you know, looking down as elves of second-class citizens. Like, these northerners treat elves like absolute dog shit. And you think Stregobor, Stregobor himself is like, I would never, like, uh, like demean myself with the likes of you. You're a quarter-blood elf. Like, you know, like that's, a, that's like a disgusting thing and that he could never even contemplate, you know, being close to an elf. Uh you know, so it's just really interesting because now you're starting to see on the northern side there's a lot of weird shit there, and the kings of the north you start to see them like like uh the the ones like Vizimir and uh, Foltis at that area like they're talking about how they can't trust the mages, but they have that one guy that we'll learn about next week. I'm not gonna say his name, but it's like it, it's really hard to tell you know really where you want to go because what Nilfgaard did. They, after they took over Sintra, they opened the, the borders and allowed the elves to come in as refugees. And Istrid went against the council who, like, are against Nilfgaard because Nilfgaard, they, they lost 14 mages in the Battle of Sodden. But Istrid said, I'm going to go there and try to help, like, elves escape and get to freedom. Uh, he's like, I, I, I lied to the council. I, I, you know, I did get to hear about Nilfgaard and they, they really believe in the emperor and they, they truly believe that this is the right thing. It's like, so you're starting to see the tide kind of turn in your mind of, Right, is Nilfgaard really, really the bad people? I don't know. There's a lot of evidence to point towards them doing some good, but they've also done a lot of bad. And the elves, too, this whole time, like, they are second-class citizens in the society, no matter where they go. Like, even the Nilfgaard in Sentra, that one guy, Hack, who, like, yells at Fringel, like, how are you going to feed these people? How are you going to clothe them? How are they going to help our mission? And, you know, she's like, hey, the white flame always finds a way and stuff. It's like, you know, so she's got this undying faith there, and it's like, you can point to that, and say, well, if these are all the ideals that they're really fighting for, those are pretty decent ideals. Where, like, you know, as the North, it's just like, well, we want to get back at you for attacking us as Sodden. And so now that the elves are trying to join you and add your army, we're just going to, you know, enslave them. And, you know, we're going to, it's basically like, you know, we're going to one-up you in being more brutal and more, like, nasty. And, and it's just, it's like a no-win situation. And, and like, those are real things that I was talking about in the debate. When it comes to the other factions and stuff, like, you know, I don't really consider them in the war. You know, witchers kind of stay out of the war. You know, they, they are hired as mercenaries to kill other monsters. Um, you know, I, it's just, it, there's too much, there's too much of playing both sides, both good and bad for everyone. Because, you know, the North probably wouldn't have taken all these extreme measures if Nilfgaard never attacked to begin with. But then, like, now it's now you guys are kind of becoming the pieces of shit because now you think all elves are bad and that they're spies and now you've got to enslave them and, and entrap them and treat them like they're dirt. Like, you have already have anyways. Like, you, know, you know, they already look down on them, but now it's almost like, and I'll say this more, you know, next week, so I actually won't say this one part right now, but, like, it's very... It, it's reminiscent of sometimes like what's kind of cool about the show too is you can kind of pull the times in American history where things are not even just American history, world history, I guess would be a better uh, way to say it of things that happen that are very, very similar. And so it's hard to tell you like who's in the right and who's in the wrong. They're both in the wrong in a lot of ways and maybe both have okay ideals. Like Nilfgaard wants, you know, peace. They want people fed. They want people clothed. They want, you know, safety. They want liberation, freedom, 
where the North is like, dude, like, why? We were just sitting here and you came and attacked our ass for no damn reason. Well, now we got to <laughs> retaliate. And now, you know, you've killed so many of our people. Now, like, it, like you guys started this war. Now, you, now we're going to give you a war. But then them giving them a war, like, makes them do a bunch of shit that, you know, normal people wouldn't do. Like, kind-hearted and people with good intentions wouldn't do. And the North's now doing that. And now it's to the point where Yennefer who was strictly on the north side and fought against Nilfgaard, is going to Nilfgaard. <laughs> like, she's going there right now. So I, I I don't have an answer to my own debate question. I don't, I can't tell who's in the right, who's in the wrong. But I'm starting to turn a little bit in my mind that, like, maybe I should pay attention to what Nilfgaard's doing. Maybe it's not all bad. And, you know, and now what, what kind of awesome flip of the script that would be for the writers, or at least in the story itself, to like have one side seem like the bad guys, but them actually yeah. be the good guys? That would be some badass writing. I would love the shit out of that. But anyways, that cool. that's really all I have for the debate section. Did you have anything you want to add to that before I talk about the, the monster that was shown in this episode? No, man, that would be... Man, no, I, I agree with you 100%. I think... One thing I do want to say, I am interested to see. It would be interesting, based on what you just said, like if we learn Nilfgaard is more like the good guys here. What if you even then bring into the fact of maybe the elves put themselves in that situation where people hated them so much? Like, think of that. Like, what if they did something very bad that no one knows about, which is why all these people hate them that way? So just something to think about. It's interesting looking from every different viewpoint. And that's what the show does so well. But with that, I'll uh, turn it back over to you, man. Let's hear about that monster. For sure. And so I'm only going to give a brief description. And the reason why is because you actually don't hear the name of the monster in this episode. You'll actually hear about it in episode 5, which we'll cover two weeks from today. But... Uh, I still think because it was shown in this episode and he was there to see, it's important to at least detail it and tell you its name and some characteristics about it. So uh, this monster is actually called a myriapod. And what myriapods are is that they are uh, creatures that are formed from stellocyte. And we're going to learn more about that next week. So I'm not going to tell you what that is or where you can find that. But they have the skull of a wolf, the horns of a ram, and the body of a large millipede, and it has a genitus armor, which is difficult to find a weakness and penetrate. And they can also be found in Lower Posada. And so I just I thought that they are really really cool. Uh, they can be created in a couple different ways, but uh, in the books, they is actually something that is mentioned as well, and it's also featured in their short story, The Sword of Destiny. Um, and that's, and that's the, the sort of destiny is actually where the scene takes place of where the, the forest of Broccolin, where Geralt is forced to save Ciri from one there. So, um, thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I thought that this is something that's important to note. Say, I won't go into too much into detail outside of that, but they are called myriapods. They resemble large centipedes. They've got uh, the different characteristics of different animals and they're very, very hard to penetrate their armor and, um, they're they're a monster to you don't want to mess with it and it's uh they're a force to be reckoned with so that is my little quick description and characteristics of the Mirapod. it's badass man and one thing that was wild to me when i was looking at it if you look in the show they almost have like human arms too do you remember seeing that they had like remember when it was reaching out to siri like it has like a centipede arms but then it has like two human arms or something 
like on its body. I don't know if you saw that though. I didn't really see that. I saw like the big claw things almost look like like uh, praying mantis claws a little bit at the very end. Um, but I didn't really see any like human arms. I don't know. Maybe they're. If just... you look on the inside, they had the two claws, but then there's two other arms like on the inside. It was very interesting. But point being is that would suck. I wouldn't want to meet that in a dark alley. If you think about it, it took out Aleshi in like three seconds, and those things are supposed to be pretty <laughs> hard to defeat themselves. So. Yeah, that was pretty pretty impressive there. So I don't know, man. I guess uh, that that's all we kind of have for the show today. Do you have anything that you want to say before I kind of close this out? No, man. Uh, you know, I'm just excited for this ride. I mean, I love the way we're doing it. Um, which thanks for your feedback, guys. I mean, we've been getting a, a lot of uh, reviews on The Witcher. Um, thanks for all your you know condolences uh, to the loss big loss we had on this show it really means a lot though just in the written reviews um but yeah over a you know over a thousand reviews that's phenomenal youtube just hit 40k on one video our tiktok is we just hit 156k on a video we posted like three months ago we haven't been able to be on there much so it just means a lot that you know what's wild is you know, we just started season two back uh, earlier this year after the summer, and it's always just, it's already taking us to heights uh, that we've never even reached before. So it's just great to, great to hear that. You're the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. Like I always say, you're Josh and I's ride or die, and we're nothing without you. And with that, I'll let you uh, uh, let, get, close us out, man. Yeah, sounds good. And it's interesting. We can't really say that we started season two this year because technically this is now 2022, and we did start. We did start, <laughs> we did start yeah. uh, in October of 2021 is when we started season two, and and in that short amount of time, it's interesting because we we crossed 20,000 uh, in terms of like downloads where we did that all through one season of our first season, and then since. We've already done another 20,000, and we're only in the first beginning, quote-unquote, beginning stages of our second season. So, yeah, it has been compounding. It's been really excellent to see. It sounds like the content is something people like to hear, and obviously with the reviews that are coming in, we're really happy that you're enjoying the, the content that we're putting out. You know, and that being said, we can talk a little bit about where you can find uh, all of our content on our social sites. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and leave a review on, on Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and leave a review on Spotify, uh, and you know, follow us on all social sites. You know, we're on Instagram at official ridiculous Patronus. We're on TikTok at ridiculous Patronus. We got our secondary Instagram page at fact or fa- at, at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. On TikTok backup page at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. We're on uh, Facebook with our fan page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We have our own site at ridiculous.blogspot.com. That one always trips me up. Uh, and then uh, we're on Twitter as well, RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Snapchat, RP Factor Fantasy. Long story short, we're at, like on all social sites. Give us a follow. Give us a like. Subscribe. Uh, leave a review. We're really excited for any sort of engagement that we get from audience feedback. And on top of that, talking about the podcast itself, you can find us anywhere you do get your podcasts. If you're an iPhone user, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Audible, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, Acast. Like I said, anywhere that you get your podcasts, we are there. We also have our YouTube channel as well that you can check out. Uh, More things coming on there here pretty soon. But outside of that, guys, 
That's really all we had here, here today. You know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Sign off. off.